Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the story of Dublin and the Great Irish Famine, and we'll be finding out about what happened, how bad it got, and the impact on the capital city. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we found out about the life, work, and legacy of the Queen of Crime, Agatha Christie, and how she became the best-selling novelist of all time. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's show is on Dublin and the Great Irish Famine. Dublin did not escape the Great Famine. Many of its inhabitants experienced experienced acute poverty and illness, while the capital witnessed an influx of the rural poor seeking refuge and relief. However, Dublin has remained largely neglected in popular and scholarly narratives of the famine. Well, until now, because a new edited collection seeks to put that right. The book is called Dublin and the Great Irish Famine. It's published in paperback by UCD Press. It's edited by Emily Mark Fitzgerald, Kieran McCabe and Kieran Riley. And I'm delighted to welcome two of the editors and one of the contributors to the show tonight. Our expert panel, Professor Emily Mark Fitzgerald of the School of Art, History and Cultural Policy at UCD. And she specialises in the visual culture of the Irish famine, poverty and migration. Her previous books include Commemorating the Irish Famine, Memory in the Monument and the co-edited collection, The Great Irish Famine, Visual and Material Culture. We're also joined by Brian Crowley, curator of collections at Kilmainham Jail Museum and the Pierce Museum and the author of Patrick Pierce, A Life in Pictures. And he contributed a chapter on Kilmainham Jail and the Great Famine. And later in the show, we'll also be joined by another of the editors of the volume, Dr. Kieran McCabe, an historian of poverty and welfare in 19th century Ireland and Britain, who lectures at Queen's University Belfast. And he's the author of Begging, Charity and Religion in Pre-Famine Ireland. Well, you're all very welcome. And Emma, I might begin with you and with that idea of how really when we think of the story of the Great Irish Famine and when we think of the histories that have been written, Dublin really doesn't feature very much. No, it doesn't. And I suppose that was really one of the the reasons why we were so interested in, in doing this volume. And it was the reason for the symposium that this volume kind of came out of that was uh, we had in UCD in 2019. And in some ways it was to showcase, I suppose, some of the very new research that was coming out of, from new and established scholars that was looking to explore just that very question. What was the impact of the famine on Dublin? What were its economic, its social um, consequences? What were its cultural consequences? And to try and bring all of that work together in some ways to try and recalibrate that story, which is obviously tipped much further in terms of, of wanting to explore the rural condition, rural experience of the famine in Ireland as opposed to uh, Dublin itself. And what was the population of Dublin at the time? I think I saw, is it something like 230,000? How bad is the famine during those years? Because there definitely seems to be distress, there definitely seems to be problems, but it seems to be nowhere near the levels of, of, of tragedy and calamity that we see in other parts of the country. 
Yeah, it's a really, it's a relative question. Um, in 1841, the population is just over 232,000. And by 1851, it's 246,000. So there is actually a population increase in Dublin. Now, part of the reason for that is that you have this influx of people coming from the countryside into Dublin itself. So the, the population rise isn't really a metric of Dublin's economic success. It's actually a symptom of what's happening elsewhere in the country. And so while it's absolutely true that you don't see the level of devastation in Dublin that you do either in other, other Irish cities or certainly in the countryside, it's a, a mistake to, to, to think that the famine didn't affect Dublin in quite profound ways. And so that's really in some ways what, what the book is trying to look at. It's trying to kind of uh, investigate those areas where it did have a really significant impact on the social life of Dublin and the, econo- the economic life of Dublin, but also as well to tell, tell the other side of the stories, the parts of Dublin and the parts of Ireland, Irish society in general, which weren't affected by the, by the famine. There can sometimes be this totalizing narrative that all of Ireland suffered equally uh, during the famine. Uh, and this book, and Dublin in particular, I think gives a lot of nuance uh, to that sort of statement. And the book has a wonderful overview at the start uh, by the great Irish social and economic historian Cormac O'Gr- and he wonderfully brings together uh, so many of the issues and challenges when talking about Dublin during the famine. Absolutely. And I think for many of us, Cormac is, is really sort of a senior figure within famine studies, not only for his work on Ireland, but also in terms of comparative famines around the world as well. And so for us, it was it was really quite an honour that Cormac responded to the invitation to write this overview that gives a very sort of um, general a kind of coverage of the sort of demographic dimensions of the famine in Dublin, some of its economic um, features as well, since he's an economic historian and that's her, his particular area of expertise. But it also, again, as, as I'm saying, kind of ex- explains this sort of picture, this mixed picture that we have of Dublin. Um, and also in some respects points to some of the areas as well where we have quite a lot of existing records but there hasn't yet been a great deal of research that's been undertaken. The Dublin workhouses are a really good example. Um, the four kind of union workhouses that are in Dublin City and, and the wider Dublin County, there still has yet to be any very substantial piece of research that compares those four workhouses, for example. And and yet those records are, are extant and they're there. So uh, in some ways, the book is also looking to sort of point to areas of further expansion and, and the things that we still really don't know with respect to the famine, both in Dublin and elsewhere. Archbishop Daniel Murray of the Roman Catholic Catholic Church comes out of the story very well in uh, one account I think at the time it's described as a saintly contribution that uh, he's someone who seems to have put a huge amount of effort into uh, relief and into looking after the people and, and that's an important part of the story as well. Absolutely. And there's a number of essays in the book that I think really highlight those aspects of charitable contribution. Um, One of the essays, for example, by Rob Goodbody looks at the contribution of the Quakers in Dublin and how significant also not only in terms of the Quakers activity in Dublin City itself, but also that the Quakers were were coordinating much of their national activity from Dublin. And that's another dimension of the book I think that's really significant is it looks at Dublin as the sort of seat of administrative control across the country. So you have much many of the efforts for relief that again are, are coming going out uh, countrywide, but are being directed from places like Dublin Castle, or they're being directed um, by the charitable organizations that have their headquarters in Dublin. So in that sense, the book is about the famine in Dublin, but it's also about the impact that Dublin has on the famine across the nation. Brian, your essay on Kilmainham really brings so many of these issues and challenges into into focus because uh, we have a, a, a you know a vagrancy act. We also have, in a way, a kind of a criminalisation of poverty. I think it's you describe it in it. And maybe first set the scene for us. What is Kilmainham Jail like in eighteen forty five? And I suppose what's its position in Dublin life and in Irish life? 
Um, well, Kilmainham, ironically enough, in 1845, uh, has just completed a major uh, building project. So for the f- um, when it's built in the 18th century, it's considered state-of-the-art. But interestingly, by the 1820s, it's already considered uh, kind of old hat and, and old fashioned and um, it, it has failed to keep up with the latest idea on prison reform. And really the, the big uh, development that happens just in the 1840s is the building of Pentonville Prison in London. And that becomes the role model for prisons throughout Great Britain and Ireland f- um, for kind of the rest of the century. Um, and these build these prisons are built with the idea of silence and separation of isolating prisoners but to do this you need quite an advanced degree of technology um, um, and new larger cells so they actually just complete their first kind of renovation on the west wing uh, park neville who's probably in dublin most famous uh, for his work on uh, the the water scheme for the for the city uh, he is given the, the task of building a new wing which has cells that are large enough to isolate prisoners so that they don't have to uh, come together so they can eat alone and work alone. Um, But also it introduces kind of central heating, essentially, uh, and ventilation. So again, that the prisoners can spend their time isolated from one another. Um, The other big initiative that they're very proud of is they build a new kitchen and they're delighted because it means they can go from a bread diet to a potato diet Uh, and it's kind of very interesting when you kind of read these in the inspector general's report knowing what we know of course uh, there's there's something very uh, kind of fateful about about that so in some ways Kilmainham is in its best condition uh, for many many decades Um, but Again, despite all these improvements, uh, like other prisons around the country, uh, it buckles under the the pressure that's going to come with the famine. And in Kilmainham's case, you know that pressure is is not going to come immediately when the famine starts, but very much kind of in the late eighteen forties into the eighteen fifties. And what did it mean if you ended up in Kilmainham in the eighteen forties during the famine? How bad were things going to get with the with the increased pressure that you're talking about? Um, one of the issues they have is is, is overcrowding, um, and there are descriptions um, in the eighteen forties of five prisoners to a cell. Uh, there's very uh, uh, kind of interesting aspects of that. That's not that is unsaid. The inspector generals uh, remind those running prisons that that they can have if they have to have more than one prisoner in a cell it must be three or more but never two and it never states why you can't have two prisoners on uh, their own in a cell um, so th- the prisoners there would have faced a degree of, of overcrowding uh, but what's interesting I think looking at prisons as opposed to the workhouse uh, system is prisons seem to cope better uh, with this situation they're much better run from what uh, I can see and with the exceptions of places, of prisons in Cork City and Galway, where there's kind of a citywide problem with disease, in Kilmainham, although there is an increase in deaths, there's nowhere near the level of mortality that you're getting in, in, in the workhouses. Ironically, I, I suppose the, the extra punishment of that isolation of, of cellular accommodation uh, makes prisons much better at controlling the spread of disease uh, compared to, I suppose, kind of workhouses where people are, are gathered in together. And the, the prison becomes um, a kind of a, a better alternative for some prisoners. So their inspector generals are concerned that young people in workhouses are deliberately uh, breaking the rules and committing crimes in the workhouse. So they'll be transferred to the jail where uh, conditions are better and also the food is much better. The food in prison 
is laid down by legislation. It can't be reduced. It has, you know, they're obliged by law to feed prisoners a set diet. Uh, and that is not the case in the, in the workhouses. Uh, you know, their workhouses are running out of food. So the food is much better. So that's, you're, you're kind of seeing prison almost ironically becoming a preferred option for the poor. And it brings home the horrors then of the famine in the workhouses when yeah. you'd prefer to commit a crime so that you can be sent to Kilmainham and and have that extra security of, of knowing uh, that you're going to get a, a, a regular meal. Who ended up in Kilmainham then during those years? Because you have very interesting uh, figures on numbers, but also uh, figures for gender and, and, and for children as well. That uh, And there is that increase. So who is getting sent to Kilmainham? Overwhelmingly, the, the overcrowding is being ca- uh, caused by vagrants, by people who are being convicted under this Vagrants Act uh, from 1847. Um, the, initially, the, the sentence is like 24 hours. So if you're a beggar on the street, if you've nowhere to go, you can be arrested and, and placed in prison. So it's overwhelmingly this increase in the prison population is coming in the 1840s and early 1850s from, from those people. Um, but as the kind of 1850s progresses uh, and technically the the famine, you know, starts to fade away, you get left with a particular problem in Ireland around children uh, or uh, underage prisoners and women. Um, And actually the Inspector Generals reflect on the fact that with the outbreak of the Crimean War, they're expecting a decrease in the number of prisoners uh, in Irish jails because young men will be joining the army. But what we see in Ireland in relation to women, there, there's always been a problem with, uh, there has been a pre-existing problem with high levels of female crime in Ireland, but the famine puts that problem on steroids, essentially. Uh, and the big issue for women is the fact that once they end up in the prison system, they seem to find it almost impossible to get out of it. So if you're a woman and you end up in prison, you're considered a, a fallen woman, essentially. And the one area of employment really available to poor women which is domestic service that's closed to you because you can't get a what would be termed a good character you can't get references nobody will employ a former prisoner uh, in their homes so what we see t- then is the, these women kind of offend and reoffend again and again and this problem then persists well into the 1850s and 1860s um, and uh, you know that it is this kind of lasting legacy of the of the famine so um, in the 1850s the inspector generals reflect on the fact that 25% of the prison population in Britain, in, in England and Wales, is uh, made up of women. In Ireland at the time, it's nearly 43%, just over 43%, which again is really unprecedented. And I suppose even just to make a comparison to our our own time, women make up a tiny percentage of the prison population, it's much less than 5% at the moment. Women generally don't end up in prison. So in some ways, seeing the level of women in the system is a reflection of just how dysfunctional Irish society has become because this group which is you know normally not seen as a as a as a problem for um for for society suddenly is um suddenly is kind of dominating uh, for a number of years there are more women than men in Kilmainham jail and you've talked about the dysfunction of this system. Is the Vagrancy Act part of that? Like, why is it so important for them in the middle of a famine to be worrying about uh, people, you know, not having, you know, living in poverty, not having these resources? And why do they have to be put in prison, even if it's only for a short time? 
I think there's a few things at play. I think there's a degree of moral panic going on as well. You know, and even the descriptions of these, you know, these shoals of vagrants making their way to to the cities. Um, I think there's a kind of a desire to somehow control them. I also feel that there's a, in these official Inspector General of Prisons reports, there's a definite tension um, bet, between the Inspector Generals and what the government is doing with this Vagrancy Act. Uh, the, the inspector generals are very committed to the idea of prisons and, and prison reform and the, and the possibility of prisons. And they feel that filling these buildings full of these poor people makes any attempt at reform impossible. You know, it's just essentially about crowd control. And I think what they can see is uh, maybe the government looking at all these prisons, like essentially there's a major prison built in, there's one in every county. And I think they maybe see this Vagrants Act as, as well as a way of kind of accessing this investment that okay well here is a solution uh, or a temporary solution to to this problem uh, but what I think is really interesting is the degree to which the poor game the system um, in, in, in a somewhat kind of almost pleasing way that um, it becomes very clear that people who are uh, in dire poverty in the city t- towards the end of the day will arrange for themselves to get arrested under the Vacancy Act and then they will have somewhere to stay and then they will have some something to eat and they will be released. Uh, and the, the, the prison system and the governors start to react against that. So they introduce measures whereby uh, the first thing that happens to prisoners when they are the, these vagrants when they arrive is that they're kind of scrubbed clean with cold water and their hair is clipped and that they're uh, that there's going to be work that they are going to have to do to try and discourage this. Um, but there's lots of complaints, um, particularly from uh, the residents around Richmond Bridewell on the South Circle Road, that in the morning the whole area is just full uh, as these uh, vagrants are being released en masse. Um, so yeah, so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of factors going on uh, with that with, with that vagrant act, um, uh, and I suppose we should never underestimate the degree to which uh, people will blame the poor for their poverty. Uh, and I think there's a little bit of that going on there as well. And shocking to to read about the numbers of children who end up in Kilmainham as well. Yeah, so there's, um, again, I suppose as part of the uh, breakdown in society, um, you have, I suppose, what you would describe as uh, uh, orphans who have lost their their family. But also once parents are no longer able to care for their children, those bonds of family start to break down. And their descriptions then, they, they, they refer to them as street Arabs because they go in, in gangs like, I suppose, like Bedouins in the in the desert. Um, and there's a, a really significant problem in Ireland. And in, interesting, again, the inspector generals refer to the fact that there's also a, a delinquency problem in England and Wales, but that's related to industrialisation and urbanisation. And the inspector generals are very clear about the fact that these children are there because of poverty. And Emily... Brian's article is in a, in section three of the collection on institutions and healthcare and mortality, and it's a it's 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 a great insight into these challenges that were faced. You know, Philomena Gorey has a has a piece on childbirth and maternity in Dublin, and looking at birth rates, and uh, it's it's a it's a different way of looking at the impact and the horrors of it, but it definitely shows the effects of the famine. Absolutely, and. 
in, in some respects, too, the different contributors, I think, really approach the subject in, in different ways. You know, Phil Gorey is looking at things like childbirth and mortality in places like the Rotunda, but also alternative places that women gave birth, lying in hospitals and, and other forms of, of, of locations where maternity services were offered. And then someone like Georgina Larragui in that section as well is looking at the experience of suicide. And suicide in particular is a very difficult subject to research in the famine context. There aren't a lot of existing records, um, or sometimes suicide isn't necessarily named. And so Georgina takes what we often call the micro-historical approach. So she looks at the case of one particular individual, sort of a water bailiff and a man who's tasked with dispensing relief in his locality, and hit the details of his particular experience, but also suicide. And that at the at, in the 19th century, then when, when the details of his suicide become public, um, they're attributed to the trauma that he experienced in terms of having to provide relief you know, to the people in his neighborhood. And so there's a direct connection that's made in this one case between the event of his suicide and his experience of, of the famine, you know, not his personal experience of starvation, but rather his witnessing of what was going on around him. So it's a really interesting way that I think provides us insight into a kind of experience which otherwise, in some respects, isn't reflected in the archival record necessarily. And it shows us, I think, in the way that, you know, with the work of people like Brendan McSivna and Karen Omerkada, who've also done really interesting micro-histories of famine experience, how looking even at, at individuals' experiences through that kind of lens can give you a much wider sort of understanding of, of the cultural milieu at the time. And it's the case study of Patrick Barden, and uh, Georgina's work is really powerful in showing how, you know, the pressures of dealing with that terrible winter of 1846 and 1847 does take a toll on those who are ad- administering the, the relief as well as on those who are directly affected by it and it brings home uh, I think very powerfully the the horror of it. Okay well tonight we are talking about the Great Irish Famine and how it affected Dublin, its impact and its legacy. We're going to take a quick break now but when we come back I'll be talking to Dr Kieran McCabe about the attempts to uh, offer relief the uh, charitable societies philanthropy and lots more besides so stay with us here on News Talk. Well welcome back to Talking History as we find out what happened in Dublin during the Great Irish Famine and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Kieran McCabe who's an historian of poverty and welfare in 19th century Ireland and Britain and who lectures in modern Irish history at Queen's University Belfast. He's one of the co-authors of this new collection Dublin and the Great Irish Famine and he's also the author of Begging Charity and Religion in Pre-Famine Ireland. Kieran, you're very welcome. Thank you very much Patrick and thanks for having me on the show. There's a perception that Dublin became a gigantic refugee camp during the famine. And that's a quote that's mentioned in the, in the introduction to the book. I think it's as from, I think, a Morris Craig book in the 1980s. Yeah. To what extent was that the case? I think um, it's a, a famous assertion by Craig. Um, and he's speaking, of course, of the significant amount of inward migration from outside of Dublin into the city during the famine. Now, I think that some nuance is provided by Cormac O'Grada and David Dixon in their works where they say that, and O'Grada goes through this in the in his overview in our volume, where he says that there is inward migration during the famine, and that does put pressure on resources in the city, but a lot of it is uh, temporary migration. A lot of the people who are coming into the city, especially from um, the western regions of Ireland, are continuing on to Liverpool and so on. Um, there is some level of permanent migration, especially from other parts of Leinster, and those people tend to settle in the city, but the bulk of it, uh, they continue on. 
And your own essay looks at the impact of the famine on voluntary charitable societies mm-hmm. in the city. And uh, let's talk about that impact because there does seem to be a, a, a large degree of uh, a large philanthropic response and charitable response to the crisis. There is. And I suppose in writing this chapter for the book, I'm drawing on my own wider research, which in looking at poverty and welfare in the 19th century, I tend to look at the non-state actors. So I, I didn't engage with the poor law union minibooks and workhouses. But what we see is uh, Dublin on the eve of the famine has a very vibrant and complex and competitive uh, welfare landscape, especially in respect of voluntary charitable societies. So what I wanted to look at was the impact of the famine distress in those years on those charities, uh, on the existing landscape and how that charitable landscape changed in the late 1840s. And it's not surprising that we learn that charities who you know, provided material assistance to the destitute were put under significant pressure. Because of that huge migration into the city, um, native Dubliners living there already also went through um, increased levels of uh, penury and destitution and poor health. So uh, what I found was, I I looked at a number of case studies like the Sick and Indigent Roomkeeper Society, the Dublin Mendicity Society, both of which of course are still in existence, um, the Strangers' Friends Society, And we find that in 1846-47, the amount of people applying to these charities is increasing substantially, maybe by 25 to 50 percent. And of course, there's an issue here where these charities and what they can do is actually quite limited because their income is from voluntary sources, uh, you know, uh, subscriptions, donations, charity sermons and so on. The people running the charities are doing that on a voluntary basis. And what they're doing is, it's a bit of a mop-up job from the overflow, uh, from the workhouse system. So there are accounts of people um, applying to, but not getting access to the workhouses in the city, the North Dublin Union and the South Dublin Union. And of course, the obvious recourse then is to go to any of the other, any of the charities um, across the city. Um, And so there's an interesting dynamic that the charities are put under increased pressure. There's an interesting relationship and dynamic with the poor law union workhouse system. And what the charities can do is quite limited. And as you show in it, the, the numbers of subscriptions drop, which, as you say, you know, it's understandable given the pressures that people were under, but at the very time when they're needed the most. Now, uh, earlier with Emily, we talked about uh, the work of the Quakers. We mentioned the work of uh, Archbishop Daniel Murray. Uh, you also show how Dublin Protestants were also active in founding new charitable societies during the famine years. Uh, for example, the Dublin Parochial Association. Yes, um, this is a very interesting organisation which was founded during the famine. Um, the people organising it were the Church of Ireland clergy in the city. And their focus was on providing material assistance to the poor, in this case, um, especially the Church of Ireland poor. But there's also a bit of a continuation of a long standing deserving versus undeserving poor distinction. Um, anyone engaged in charity at this time, or pretty much anyone, I, sh- I should say, um, didn't believe that everyone who applied for charity should get 
what they want kind of willy-nilly and without due discrimination and investigation of the causes of their poverty. And so we see the Dublin Association with the Church of Ireland clergymen, they are also promoting uh, cleanliness and good habits in the homes of the poor applying to them. And they actually hold prizes um, for the applicants with the cleanest you know, tenement room in Dublin in the late 1840s. So it's interesting that uh, it, it's responding to the crisis of the famine years, but uh, it reflects wider societal perceptions of the poor and notions of um, deserving poverty. And it shows also the the stresses that are on the workhouses because mm-hmm. in many cases they're turning away people and that they've got their own strict criteria and that it definitely seems that, as you say, that there there is a need for these mopping up o- operations because uh, there's so much there's so much so many groups getting into difficulties. Yes, they are, and I mean, there's any different or any number of categories in terms of the providers of welfare. The obvious you know, place to start is the, the workhouses as, as state entities, and then um, there's the voluntary charitable societies, uh, some of which, well, the main ones I looked at were non-denominational, and then, of course, the churches, um, where organising relief within their own communities. So, um, as mentioned at the start, the charitable landscape is quite complex and varied. So talk to us about the Vagrancy Act in 1847 because that seems to have a huge impact on things and it also seems to have um, you know, reinforced an idea about the morality that was at play here and uh, those who deserved help and then those who were going to be looked down on. Yes, um, so when the Irish Poor Law was um, passed in 1838, one of the things that it left out, it didn't address, was the issue of vagrancy and begging in Ireland. And a lot of the people supporting the poor law in the middle 18, of the 1830s were stressing the need for this vagrancy law to criminalise um, you know, vagrant and wandering beggars. Because at this time, beggars and um, vagrants were seen as not just impoverished and potentially immoral, but as carriers of disease. And people who could potentially spread disease into communities that they um, that they came into. So the eighteen thirty eight poor law comes in and the government doesn't include any vagrancy clauses. So it remained an outstanding issue into the famine years. And in eighteen forty seven there is a renewed drive amongst people concerned with poverty and social issues in Ireland to lobby the government for this vagrancy act. It's passed in the summer of eighteen forty seven and we have accounts of the following spring, 1848, where uh, charities and social reformers in Dublin City are critical of the government in not suitably enforcing this Vagrancy Act, which served to criminalise the wandering from place to place. It criminalised people who engaged their children in public begging and criminalised a man's desertion of his family for fear that the family would then resort to the workhouse and you know, be maintained at the expense of the ratepayers. And so because of the outcry in 1848, uh, the Dublin police then come down heavy on vagrants and paupers in the city. And they, you know, move thousands of vagrants on out of the city, but they also uh, convict and imprison thousands of people. And such by 1849, about 
there's a, I think in Dublin prisons there's about seven and a half thousand people in prison um, throughout the year convicted of begging and about 75-80% of them are from outside Dublin. So there's this inward migration of the non-local poor and uh, the state apparatus dealing with them through the new Vacancy Act. And it really brings home, I suppose, the, the stresses and the pressures that uh, uh, they were facing during it, that yeah. Dublin mightn't have been as badly hit as other counties, but it was still being uh, seriously impacted. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that the book tries to get across is it, it challenges that long-standing notion that Dublin wasn't really affected by the famine. I mean, certainly things weren't as bad as Connemara or Skibbereen, but it makes quite clear that uh, um, the famine did play out in Dublin City and impacted greatly on um, inhabitants of all social classes. Well, my thanks to Dr. Kieran McCabe of Queen's University Belfast for joining me. Uh, he's the co-editor of the new book Dublin and the Great Irish Famine. And when we come back after the break, I'll be rejoined by the panel as we explore the impact and the legacy of the famine in Dublin. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we remember what happened in Dublin during the Great Irish Famine. And tonight's show is occasioned by the publication of a brilliant new book, Dublin and the Great Irish Famine. And I'm delighted to be rejoined by one of the editors, Professor Emily Mark Fitzgerald and uh, one of the contributors, Brian Crowley, who's the creator of collections at Kilmainham Jail Museum and the Pierce Museum. And just before the break there, we heard from another of the editors, Dr. Kieran McCabe. But Emily, you wrote write about photographs during the famine and the fact that some of the earliest photographs that we have of Dublin are during this period and maybe tell us about those images because they don't capture the famine directly but I suppose they capture what's happening in the city during this time. Yes, it's a it's a really interesting story. Uh, photography is invented in 1839. So it essentially comes into being into the world right before the onset of the famine in 1845. And we have these set of calotypes. Now, calotypes are really one of the two earliest forms of photographs. There's daguerreotypes, and then the calotypes are the competing process. And calotypes are a paper-negative process where a paper-negative is created and then makes a paper print. And when you look at them, they're, they're quite, they can look quite mottled and diffuse. The detail is not very sharp in them. And so this is a really early photographic process that is picked up in, on in Ireland. And the earliest photographs that we have of Dublin at all date from the mid-1840s. We have a pretty good sense because of watermarks on the paper that that's, we can reliably date them. And they're taken essentially by you know, elite members of society. We have an idea of who some of the individuals were. And they basically are going around Dublin in what appears to be oftentimes the early parts of the morning when there's not a lot of people in the streets and they're taking um, various photographs mostly of monuments and of architecture and the photographers themselves appear in many of the photographs but this is a, a photographic technology that doesn't capture motion and so anyone who's moving quickly disappears from the photograph and so what's interesting to look at them is in terms of their correspondence with all of these written accounts that we have of what Dublin streets looked like and in many respects the photographs don't show us that they're and, and part of this is a technological reason because they can't capture motion, but it's also a choice that's being made apart about what aspects of, of Dublin are going to be visualized and made visible through this new technology. So in some senses, this is as it's one of the interesting things about the famine is that although it's visualized extensively in, in illustrated periodicals and engravings, there are actually no direct photographs of the famine that survive. And it's not obviously because the technology didn't exist, because these calotypes obviously demonstrate that it did, but that this was not a subject that was seen 
seen as suitable for visualization or to, you know, to be captured and shown to sort of polite society. So while we have lots of extensive textual descriptions, the visual record is much more sparse. The fourth and final section of the book looks at the famine in memory and the the famine in cultural histories. And it is interesting the way for so long the the Dublin aspect of it really didn't feature too much. And uh, perhaps that's changing now with more uh, visual representations of it on the streets of Dublin. But uh, it's interesting how it kind of seems to have been written out or ignored or there were silences there as as some of the contributors say. Yes, I mean, there's there's a couple interesting dimensions to that. Um, one, of course, I've always been, I've been interested for many years in the commemoration of the famine and the way that it was monumentalized, particularly in the 1990s and through to the present. But when you think about even some of the, the best-known kind of monuments to the famine that are in Dublin, like Rowan Gillespie's sculpture that's on the Quays or um, Edward Delaney's piece that's in St. Stephen's Green that's actually from the 1960s, many of these monuments, uh, while they're very evocative and people respond to them in, in quite moving ways, they're actually not particularly specific to Dublin. They don't actually refer to the localized experience of the famine in Dublin. They stand for a much wider kind of national or cultural experience. And that differs quite a lot from the rest of the commemoration that you often find across other parts of the country that are responding to local particulars. So there's still actually quite a gap in terms of the commemoration of the famine in terms of how it responds to particular places and locations. None of the workhouses, for example, are commemorated, although they were profound, you know, profoundly important places in terms of famine experience, but none of them have been uh, commemorated in the city, and they go on to become other institutions, like some of them become mother and baby homes, for example. And, and so there's a longer institutional history that they experience. So this question of, of the memory of the famine in Dublin is a really complica- complex one. And we have again, the various essays that look at this in terms of visual art and also in terms of literature. Uh, and the literature essay um, by Chris Cusack, for example, observes that Dublin is really absent as well from the sort of famine imaginary. It doesn't form, it doesn't conform with the sort of iconography of famine that we know. And so he looks at both early 20th century and much more recent books, um, like from Colin McCam and, and his sort of uh, retelling of the famine and also finds that, you know, Dublin is this, is this place that just doesn't seem to accord with the popular or public memory of the famine. And what about the memorials that we have? Like, uh, well, we have, you know, things like the Epic Museum and we have the statue. I think there's a, there's a description of a plaque, which I wasn't aware of, at Cleary's, where, uh, and that has an interesting connection as well with the story. So there are attempts to maybe uh, to show and to signify uh, these parts of the story and the mm-hmm. tragedy and the impact. Of course. And I think... You know, commemoration, the cliche, of course, is always that commemoration is more about the present than it is about the past. And and many of the recent commemorations to the famine, I think, are manifestations of, of different values and concerns that we have within society. So the plaque that you mentioned on the side of Cleary's, it was um, put up by the Polish embassy. And in it, it's a commemoration of Paweł Strzelecki, who was one of the most important figures in terms of the British Relief Association, a really important private organization providing charity across the country. Um, Strzelecki was a Polish count. Um, he worked primarily in the west of Ireland, but was a really significant individual in terms of representing um, private philanthropy. And really, in, in some respects, that plaque represents as well the growing Eastern European, in particular, Polish community in Ireland, wanting also to make that connection between their history and this, you know, this such important part of 19th century history. And then somewhere like Epic Museum, in some respects, is also a manifestation of, of the interest in, in reconnecting with diaspora and with diaspora tourism and things like that. So it is in some of its exhibits, obviously, it mentions the famine and, and engages with that history because the famine is so important in terms of emigration and Custom House Keys is an important 
you know, embarkation point for, for ships heading to Liverpool and elsewhere. And so in, in Epic, as a museum, you know, in, intends to engage with those histories as well. And that very powerful memorial down there as well, which really captures the, the trauma of the families having to uh, embark and, 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 and try and find a new life and hope that they don't die along the way. That's right. So we have the sort of triumvirate of Epic, which is there in the CHQ, the Museum of, of Emigration. We've got Rowan Gillespie's 1997 famine monument on, on the quayside. And also then there's the Jeannie Johnston, which is the replica 19th century uh, ship that also sort of tells a famine story. Brian, Kilnainham pops up throughout our history. You know, you could almost, well, you can tell the entire history of our country through the prison. And I think that's why it's such a wonderful place for, for people to visit, to find out about our own history. At the end of the famine, what is the position of Kilmainham then? You know, how, has it been changed by all of the overcrowding, by everything that has, has experienced? Um, I suppose what you, you see in terms of the the building itself is that those plans for its modernisation in the 1840s, to a certain extent, they get kind of put on hold because of this crisis. Um, and it, they don't really get back online until the 1860s. And that's when you see uh, the development of the East Wing, which is probably the thing that most people think about when they think about Kilmainham Jail, that very impressive central hall that appears in films and and everybody's holiday uh, uh, photographs. Um, but one of the things is, I think in terms of the, the wider impact of the famine, of course, is the fact that even though there's this huge investment in the building of prisons into the 1860s, by the end of the century, uh, because of the dramatic decline in population in the country and particularly because of emigration which is in many ways kind of weeding out the kind of the young men in particular but young men and women who are emigrating there is a dramatic fall in terms of uh, of prison numbers so at the start of the century they're building all these prisons at the end of the century they're closing them down so the east wing opens in Kilmainham jail in 1862 Kilmainham jail completely closes as a criminal prison in 1910 so it's really interesting just to see you know that kind of dramatic shift in in the country and how that kind of fall in in population um affects affects the building itself and i suppose in terms of you know its status today as this kind of kind of almost uh, well definitely iconic building in terms of irish revolutionary history when the jail is um restored in the 1960s by the command of jail restoration society their their focus is very much on its on its political history there there isn't a, a lot of attention really paid to its its uh, its penal history with the exception of the famine uh, and the so the the in their first guidebook the first the only real reference to the ordinary prisoners um is in relation to the famine and i think it is used in the initial interpretation of the building as, I suppose, an example of British misrule in Ireland. Um, it's kind of evidence as to why independence was such a such a necessity. Um, but I suppose as the years have progressed, then I, I, I think there's been a lot more work done both on penal history, but also looking at that the wider issues around the famine and, and how that affected uh, the building. But again, as somebody who's kind of charged with looking after the uh, collection in the in the museum. What I find really fascinating is the political prisoners w- aren't even a percent in terms of the overall numbers. They're a tiny part, you know, in in real terms of the of the prison numbers. But if you look at our collection, uh, the nearly the entire collection is to do with political history, and we have 
only a tiny amount of material related to ordinary prisoners at all and hardly anything to do with the famine. Though the one thing that, one development that has been really useful is the digitalisation of prison records in particular because at least we have a slightly better sense, you know, even of the names of the people who were in the in the prison over the, that period. But again, it's a very, very thin history uh, and I suppose something that we're also very conscious of the fact that, you know, it's um, it can be very reductive as well. The people emerge and they're defined purely by their poverty, purely by their imprisonment. In some ways, the challenge is to try to create a, a somewhat richer history or, you know, um, make sure that they are presented not as a statistic or, or one of a, just one of many thousands, but to look at these people as individuals who had had their own story, albeit one that is largely forgotten and unrecorded. Because it does have that status in Irish history as Ireland's Bastille, so the attention is is very much on 1916 and the leaders, and you know even in that revolutionary period up to the, and including the Civil War, and then before that Charles Stuart Parnell and where he was kept, and before that Robert Emmet and the revolutionary uh, generation of that earlier period. That I. I I suppose we do forget about its its role in day-to-day life and during particularly traumatic times like the famine years and I think there is also a huge amount that we can learn by just looking at what it was like for you know ordinary men, women and children who who ended up in Kilmainham and not just focusing on uh, the revolutionaries or political leaders who ended up there or uh, who lived and, and in some cases uh, died there. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting as well is because now, you know, it, it's become this kind of sacred s- space within the nation. But in many ways, everything that uh, a society wants to hide or sees as transgressive, um, that becomes visible often in their prisons. So, like, for us, it's been really interesting to look at, you know, we were talking about all these kind of female prisoners post-famine, like, the the amount of women engaged in in sex work in in Dublin and again this is a story that's very much hidden at the time similarly things men who were charged on same sex activity as well all these hidden stories and it's very interesting to see that these marginalised groups who I think Ireland has been having a reckoning um, in recent years in terms of of groups who have been ill-treated uh, uh, in the uh, certainly in the new state, uh, LGBT people, uh, uh, women who uh, found themselves on the wrong side of the sexual morality of, of the time, their stories are kind of quite vivid within this space, and it's very interesting to see these stories in parallel with, I suppose, what are the traditional great heroes of Irish history, and to find that they're both in this sacred space together and there's something I think very useful and very dynamic about that. And you've done brilliant work bringing those stories to life with various tours and hidden histories uh, because I think they're important dimensions of our history and that uh, I think it's a much better history to have them as part of it. Yeah, uh, and to see that these stories are also very, very central to who we are. Emily, if I was to be critical of tonight's show, I, I would say, why are we doing a show on Dublin and the Great Irish Famine when we should be doing a show on the West of Ireland and the Great Irish Famine? And that, you know, this is a much more uh, insulated and protected part of the story and, and that therefore it's, here we go again, Dublin talking about Dublin. I don't know if Dublin will really ever overshadow the story of the famine in terms of its you know, its its effects across across the island. 
you know, when you look actually at some of the most recent and high-profile publications on the famine, like the Atlas of the Great Irish Famine, for example, with by Cork University Press, which is a, a brilliant publication, you know, and it's absolutely massive, but there's very, very little mention of Dublin at all within it, which in and of itself is a misrepresentation, I think, of the the significance of the city, as I say, both how it extends out and also how the famine comes into it as well. So I certainly don't think that we're we're looking to replace any of these other histories or and it's not a situation of competitive suffering either. I think that's a mistake to kind of think that that's the the nature of historical inquiry. but but in in some respects, it's it's really about starting to fill some of these gaps in our knowledge, which are quite fundamental and still persist, um, and to highlight where the other places that research can go next. Do you think there was ever a sense of guilt amongst the people in the capital that it hadn't suffered as much as people in other counties? Or was it just relief at having survived? I don't know if guilt comes into it so much. And many of some of our essays look at these sort of first-hand accounts, in particular of cultural elites and what their experience was during the famine. And for the most part, they find that the famine is often an, a kind of an annoyance, or it's it's something that people reference as being aware that it's going on, you know, to to such a degree of severity. People knew, of course, what was happening in in the countryside because of news reports and other things. Um, but for many people in Dublin, especially the cultural elite, they went on with their daily lives. You know, the Dublin Castle social season continues. People continue to by commodities. Kieran Riley's essay looks at that. Catherine Milligan's essay looks at art exhibition and consumption of, of, of that kind of activity. And these activities continue. So it's again, it's about trying to understand the famine in all of its nuances, both the degree to which people are suffering in Dublin and outside of Dublin as well, but also the extent to which life continues, you know, in almost not to necessarily ignore the tragedy, but it's sidelined. And I think that that's a very accurate reflection even now of how often we experience crises in the contemporary world. So they're not generally all-consuming, but there are people who have a diversity of experiences and it's about acknowledging that. And it reminded me of the pandemic because uh, there was an increase in excess deaths and, you know, there was uh, uh, there was suffering, there was distress. And and I think as, as you and the, your co-editors make it clear in the introduction, it is so important that we tell the story for the whole island and that every part uh, needs to be told so that we can get a, a better understanding of, of what happened uh, to our country back then. Yeah, I think uh, fundamentally it's about deepening our knowledge of this period because it is so cataclysmic for Ireland as a whole, for the country, for the island. Um, and this really is just a book that looks to fill those, those some of those kind of gaps of, of understanding. And I think as well, pay tribute as well and really recognize the extent of suffering that did that was experienced in the city and not to diminish that experience because it wasn't necessarily as severe as you would find in Mayo or Clare or these other kinds of places but the poverty was endemic in Dublin leading up to the famine it was devastating during the famine and this book is about in, in some it is also about paying tribute to that and, and bringing that to a greater degree of visibility as well well it's a very important collection of essays published in paperback by ucd press it's called dublin and the great irish famine the editors are emily mark fitzgerald kieran mccabe and kieran riley and i was delighted to be joined by two of the editors and one of the contributors for tonight's show professor emily mark fitzgerald of ucd brian crowley the creator of collections at kilmainham jail museum and the pierce museum and dr kieran mccabe of Queen's University Belfast. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my series producer, Marisa Sullivan, Aoife Breen, who produced the show tonight, and Peter Malloy on sound. And thanks also to Lachlan. Join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night.